0: Welcome to Once Upon a Disney, an analytical yet fun loving look at Disney narrative filmography from the 20th century. I'm Andy Redwine, and with me, as always, is my co host and someone I always have a friend in, Larry Brenner. How are you, Larry?
1: I'm doing great, Andy. How are you doing?
0: I'm doing swell. Hey, what movie are we watching today?
1: This is one of my favorites. Toy Story 2, which, for me, proves that you can have a sequel that's even better than an already great original movie. I love
0: this movie, Andy. Same, same. And listener, fair warning, we may go long today. We might. I have a lot. You have a lot. We have a whole lot. Should we just jump right into Key facts? I think we need to. Well, after the release of Toy Story Uh, Director John Lasseter was in an airport and he saw a little boy holding on to a Sheriff Woody doll. And it was in this exchange that Lasseter observed between the little boy and his father that showed him how Woody was no longer just his, that Woody belonged to the public. And Lasseter claims he was moved to create the perfect sequel for that little boy and everyone else who loved the Toy Story characters as much as he did. I mean, what a great reason to make a film, right? And to make a sequel. So the making of Toy Story 2, there's this great little documentary that's included on the special edition DVD, if you can find it. And in this documentary, Lassiter talks about his own compulsive toy collecting and how he sees himself in Al from Al's Toy Barn.
1: If you guys had seen the look that Andy just shot me when she talks about compulsive toy collecting.
0: Oh, I mean, we're both there, Larry. I mean, both of us have our, I, if you were to look into my office right now, you would see, and Larry's space too, like there are toys everywhere all around us. So, I mean, we're both kind of there. For sure. For sure. <laughs> we get it. So um, Lassiter's wife, Nancy, pressed him really hard to include a strong female character In Toy Story 2, and Jessie came from that, from her press there. So there are certain elements of the original Toy Story that were shelved for the first film, but then were resurrected for the second. So the first movie initially had a Buzz Lightyear cartoon playing on TV. And this actually morphs into the video game that begins Toy Story 2. Another sequence, Woody's nightmare of being thrown into a trash can, was also initially in the original Toy Story. As was Wheezy with his broken squeaker. Other Pixar elements were also utilized for this film. There's Jerry from uh, Pixar's a 1997 short, Jerry's Game. He becomes the cleaner, right? Nothing's truly ever wasted in writing or filmmaking, and I think that's kind of a, a nice little a nice little bit there. In 2014, Pixar co-founder Ed Catmull published a book entitled Creativity Inc overcoming the unseen forces that stand in the way of true inspiration. It's a great book. I recommend it. So in that book, Catmull details how Toy Story Mm -hmm. 2 was quite nearly a disaster. Uh, The winter prior to the film's release, someone at Pixar accidentally wiped a lot of the work on the production from the root uh, directory files. In fact, they, like, erased most of the movie.
1: Oh my gosh, I've seen, they have, like, a DVD extra, or it may even be available on Disney Plus under extras, of just what the panic was when suddenly all, everything
0: was gone. It was all gone. Can you even imagine that? The supervising technical director, Galen Sussman, had been working from home while on maternity leave, and she happened to have a backup copy of the film. And had she not been able to work from home, friends, we might have never seen Toy Story 2. It's amazing.
1: I have never felt, look, as good as this movie is, there is more dramatic tension in this DVD extra when they're telling this story than any movie could ever hope to have. Definitely, definitely worth a watch. Shall we get into the story here? Let's do it. All right. So, we're beginning Toy Story 2. And so, as always, I ask about the Manish Tana. Why does this movie begin where it begins? And one might argue that this movie begins in a strange place because we see Buzz Lightyear uh, hurtling through space on a secret mission to fight and defeat the evil
0: Emperor Zurg. Andy Why are we starting our movie here? Well, it's a great question. I mean, it's a super, it's a callback to the last movie, right? Where Buzz sees himself as a space ranger. I mean, it establishes Buzz as a larger than life hero in a game, right? And it really showcases what Buzz really feels like his capabilities truly are. He's kind of secure in who he is in this film, I think. But there's someone that's insecure, and that's Woody. I
1: think that's exactly right. So... At the beginning, we're watching this uh, Buzz Lightyear video game. We don't know it's a video game at that point, up until the point where Evil Emperor Zerg blasts Buzz apart. And we learn that it was actually Rex playing the video game. But it wasn't Buzz playing the video game. And Buzz is not invested at all in his own mythology. The story of him fighting Evil Emperor Zerg, space, he is. He past all of that. That was the first movie, and I think it's a nice way of saying look how much buzz has grown. And you're right. It is directly in contrast to Woody who is so upset that he can't find his hat. What if it's gone forever? Which is going to be recurring question for Woody throughout this entire movie. Think, you know, Woody is really struggling with the fact that time always marches forward. And there's no going backwards. So, uh, we get a bunch of exposition here. And what we see is what Andy's house and the toy community has been like since the first movie. Things have been good. Woody and Bo are still together. The dog, at first we wonder maybe he's a major disruption to uh you know Buster if he's a major disruption to the toys but in fact that dog loves Woody and will do anything that Woody asks is not a disruption buzz has really grown as a person i think he, we we just established he's markedly changed from what we'd seen in the previous movies Mr. Potato Head is now married to Mrs. Potato Head. It's like they were made for each other, Andy. We still know these characters. We remember where we left off from them. There's nothing much we need to get caught up with. The one little bit of exposition that we get is Andy is about to go off to cowboy camp, and Woody is super excited because for him, that is... The alone time that he gets with Andy every year, the week that he looks forward to the most of the entire year. And that's why he's super nervous about not having his hat. That being said, there are two places where I might put the inciting incident. I think there's one that sparks the emotional journey for our characters. And I think there's another one that actually kicks off the plot.
0: Do you want to tackle either of these, Andy? I think that there are some people that have argued that Woody's arm being ripped and keeping him from going to cowboy camp is the inciting incident here. And I think that's probably what you're referring to when you talk about the emotional inciting incident. It
1: is absolutely what I'm talking about as an emotional inciting incident.
0: I think for me, that's I mean, it gets us into Woody's head but it doesn't really move the plot forward. You are correct. If all that happened to Woody was that his arm
1: got torn and he sat on the shelf for a couple of weeks, there is no movie. It is not the inciting incident for plot. It does get Woody into a different headspace than he was in just a minute ago. Just a minute ago, Bo had spoken to him about how Andy will always love him and nothing will ever change that. And he's fine. And then he's broken. He becomes a broken toy. And that starts what is essentially Woody's midlife crisis. Right. But so what would you say the actual inciting incident of the movie is then?
0: So I think the actual inciting incident is when Al from Al's Toy Barn Steals Woody as he's rescuing Weezy, right? If, if Woody doesn't leave Andy's house, he's not going to learn about Woody's roundup. He's not going to, the friends aren't going to work to make sure he isn't left behind. So here's what
1: I'm going to say. I think both of these two things together form one inciting incident. And here's why. The reason Woody goes to rescue Weezy, in part, it's because Woody is a good guy. But his motives are not selfless. Woody is seeing another toy get thrown away at the same time that he's worried about himself getting thrown away. And when Woody goes to rescue Wheezy, there's a part of him that's like, will someone come to rescue me when I'm the one who's headed for the trash heap? So. I don't know. I can't get into Woody's heart and say that in a normal in a, on a normal day Andy's mom takes Weezy takes him to the yard sale and say that Woody just stays home. I don't believe that to necessarily tr- be true, but it changes how urgent it is for Woody to save Wheezy. He saves Weezy and that's what put, you know, Al does steal him, but it's worth pointing out Woody put himself in danger. That was a choice that Woody made. And all of that together, all of that together is one long inciting incident. It's born out of his emotional state, and it has a consequence that launches the movie. And it's so smart. It's so smart.
0: That ripped arm is kind of a physical manifestation of mom's toys don't last forever statement, which is a death. Woody, I think, is acting out of that. Like, I'll show you toys don't last forever. I'll take it on. Maybe it's selfish. In a way, but I think it's more of a of a first uh, bit of conflict and how Woody is going to handle this "toys don't last forever" conflict. That that his initial impetus is to rescue the toys and keep everything together.
1: I have to share the moment that I texted you while watching this movie with our listeners. There's the nightmare sequence where Woody imagines Andy coming home and throwing him out. I obviously remembered that sequence. I remember everything from this movie. But the thing that I saw that I hadn't seen before is in that dream sequence, all the other toys are playing poker. But when they scatter because Andy suddenly come home, they all drop their cards and every single card is the ace of spades. Now, you might remember me talking about the Ace of Spades when we did the Pinocchio podcast. It's the card that uh, Fox Fowlfellow gives to Pinocchio. The Ace of Spades in the tarot is death. And it's such a small detail. It's number one, it's a hint that what we're seeing is a dream, because why do they all have the Ace of Spades? But it's also Woody's fear is death. The death of his relationship, being thrown out, becoming a broken, lost toy, destruction, loss. This movie is so good! I've seen this movie 50, 60 times, and it's the first time I've noticed that. So, rising action. It's worth pointing out here that we've got an A-plot and a B-plot in this movie. The A-plot, our main protagonist is Woody. Woody has been kidnapped. He goes to Al's toy barn. Al brings him to the apartment. And there he meets the other Roundup gang toys. He meets Jesse, Bullseye, and Prospector. And at first, he's perfectly fine to meet them until he tells them he's got to go back home to Andy, which utterly destroys Jesse. Because the four of them together as a set are a museum piece that can last, that can be immortal, that can be like followed by kids. Kids kids can visit them in Japan for generations. And it c- creates a conflict between Woody and Jesse. They spend a lot of time together. Prospector tries to get them to heal the relationship between the two of them. It looks as if, although, I mean... If you haven't seen the movie and you're like getting spoilers from me here, you deserve to have this movie spoiled. We believe, I mean, really, what are you doing? It
0: was what, 1999? Stop this podcast right now and go watch this movie and then hit play again. (laughs) What kind of fan are you?
1: You need to look in the mirror and really evaluate the choices you've made. I'll move forward. Woody believes, and the audience is led to believe, that Jessie is sabotaging Woody's attempts at escape. In fact, it is not her. But it is actually, bump, 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 the prospector. But we'll learn that later. And there is a point where Woody has the opportunity to leave, sees Jessie bullseye and prospector prospector gives him a speech of how long will it last your relationship with andy he's growing up and woody makes the choice to stay with woody's roundup the roundup gang and he stays at the same time buzz and the gang go on a journey to try to rescue woody They cause massive traffic accidents as they try to cross the street to
0: Al's Toy Barn. My favorite sequence of this movie. It's my favorite.
1: It's so funny because they are absolutely oblivious to the chaos that they've caused. They think they've pulled off like no one noticed it was a perfect crime. And they just leave chaos in their wake. They get to the toy store. At the toy store, there's a number of things that happen. The most important thing is Buzz seeing a version of of himself with a new utility belt, thinks to himself, maybe I want to grab that utility belt, and accidentally releases a second Buzz Lightyear, who has the character flaws of Buzz from the first movie, does not believe he's a toy. The second Buzz, I will call him Buzz 2, Buzz 2 ties up Buzz 1 and replaces him with the rest of the gang to rescue Andy, believing, of course, that he's on an intergalactic mission and that Woody's been kidnapped by a minion of, of Zerg. Buzz eventually frees himself. There is a confrontation between Buzz and Buzz and Woody up in Al's apartment, where essentially everything comes to a head, but it's not yet our climax. So the gang goes to rescue Woody, and Woody doesn't want to be rescued. Buzz comes in and confronts his doppelganger, and everybody straightens out, oh, which one's the real Buzz? That happens. And then the real Buzz has a conversation with Woody. Like, you've forgotten that you're a toy. The thing that you taught me in the first movie is the thing I need to remind you of. It looks as if Buzz and the rest of the gang are going to leave empty-handed, Woody sits and thinks for a bit and then says, Buzz, I'm going to come with you. And then we get to, I think this movie has a tremendously
0: long climax. Maybe like the entire third act. It is
1: a nonstop action thrill ride and it just keeps going and keeps going. I still think we're in rising action when the prospector does his heel turn and reveals that he's the villain of the movie. That he's the one who's been sabotaging Woody's attempts to escape. But I mean, like to take a look at any of these points and say this is the climax, I think it's just one big climax. The toys have to follow Woody's car to the airport. Then they've got to save Woody, which means a fight with the prospector. They defeat the prospector, but Jesse, still in the box, goes to the airplane the airplane is, you know, then Woody now has to take on the role of hero. He, Buzz and Bullseye, go running towards the plane to rescue Jesse. And ultimately, through the heroics of these toys, the day is saved. But it is not like a button climax. It is just a huge, sprawling action sequence. Normally, I throw this to you and I'm like, Andy, can you point to it? But I feel like if I were to do that, I'd be setting you up for failure because there is no one point. It's a ginormous, brilliant set piece after set piece,
0: struggle after struggle. It's so good. I mean, and there's almost a false climax when Rex defeats Emperor Zerg. It's kind of a nice wrap up of, you know, it, we know things are going to be OK.
1: I even left out... The Evil Emperor Zergjoy confronting Buzz Lightyear 2.
0: There's so many great obstacles and that these characters have to overcome in short order. And they have to do it convincingly and they have to do it in a way that's that brings some humor. But yeah, that airport chase and being locked into the airplane and Woody has to convince Jesse to, you know, let go and Buzz and Bullseye catch them when they jump from the plane. And then, you know, they think they're okay, but then there comes another plane. I mean, they're just... And then it's, let's go home. And it's like, well, how are they going to do that? Right. And then we get the falling action, which is Andy comes
1: home from cowboy camp and is welcomed home by his toys. We see, by the way, that he immediately accepts Jesse and Bullseye as part of his gang. He renames them. He has no idea that they're even part of Woody's collection. Necessarily, I think he calls her Bazooka Jane, but that's fine. They're going to get played with. They're going to get loved. We see in the falling action that actually what Andy did when he was at camp was learn how to do a stitch so he could fix Woody. That is the entire time he was there, he was thinking about Woody and loving Woody, which is a very nice beat. We see uh, Buzz finally getting the opportunity to really spend some time with Jesse, watches her do an amazing stunt to get the help the dog get outside and his wings extend which promises for the future like buzz's life you know like this is not just another toy to him he's attracted to her and also woody gets a little time to talk with bo peep and with buzz and he ruminates on his choice to stay rather than go to the museum but ultimately he wants to watch andy grow up and he can't trade that for anything else.
0: Right. I mean, he knows that his value comes from being loved by his boy, right? Even if that love is is really temporal. My favorite part of the falling action is seeing the the airport luggage car in front of the house.
1: Oh, I love that. I crack up every time. It's like, well, how
0: did they get home? And you,
1: know, you see this airport luggage car. It's like, oh, they wonder what came when The Neighbors off. come out with the cup of coffee and they're like, what happened here? Also, Mr. and Mrs. Potato Hood, head, the honeymoon is over. Welcome to parenthood.
0: I would add, Larry, that there's just a lot of back and forth in this structure. And 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 I love it. And, and it, is, it seems to me the writers are really using that old school sequence method when they structure this film. And there's a great book by Paul Galino called Screenwriting the Sequence Approach, which I really like a lot. And it focuses a lot on this structure in Toy Story. And I think they, they use it again here in Toy Story 2. I think his approach is worth your time if you're serious about crafting story for screen. You know the, the, we have all the traditional inciting incident, rising action, point and no overturn, climax, falling action. We have all of that, but each section is a variety of sequences that the movie moves through. Most of the sequences last about nine to eleven minutes. They're about 15 pages per sequence. I mean, it is, it's pretty even mathematical. If you look at the screenplay itself on paper, each of the sequences have, a, has a job to do. And the dance, I think between Woody's want to really feel like he matters and Buzz's want to rescue his friend based on what he's learned from him in the previous movie is really something special. Even though that has a math, it if you look at it on paper, it's pretty rigid as to where things it land. But when you watch it, it's magic.
1: And every sequence here has incredible stakes. Whether we're rescuing Wheezy, whether Woody's trying to recover his arm, whether they need to cross the street and not get discovered, every single sequence
0: is urgent. There is no moment where you really get to catch your breath. If this obstacle is not overcome, then the mission is lost in every single sequence, and including the emotional ones, right? If Woody doesn't figure out things with Jesse, Jesse's going to go back into storage. And we just watch this whole thing about her and what that, you know... Woody has been saddled
1: with the responsibility of Jesse's psychological... When I say saddled, number one, I'm not doing a play of words cowboy style about saddles. But I mean, like, he didn't ask for this responsibility. Jesse's emotional well-being is tied up in Woody's choices. And he becomes very much aware that if he makes the wrong choice, he will do her harm. He didn't ask for that. It's not his fault that he's in that situation. It doesn't matter. Another
0: person's well-being is there. The stakes are there. They're real. It's part of Woody's character because, you know, in that very beginning, let's just jump into characters and start talking about Woody. You know, in that very initial... Thing where we see him going to cowboy camp, he's really worried. He's putting Buzz in charge, right? But he's really worried like, make sure everybody knows what to do if they're accidentally swallowed. Like, make sure, like, he's really caring about the needs of every little toy, including Wheezy, who's broken and, you know, doesn't have a squeaker. I mean, he cares about all of them. And so it's very natural then for him to really care about Jesse and her needs, right?
1: You know, he deserves to be – in the first movie, we question whether Woody deserves to be the, at the head of the table for the toys. Because he goes through, you know, a dark thing where he becomes jealous of Buzz. But here we see exactly why he's at the head of that table. He is a father figure. I know I said this in the last movie, and there was some controversy about that, that Woody sees himself as Andy's father. But when he's talking about how this is his weekend, this is his one week a year he gets just him and Andy, he doesn't just mean and no other toys around. He also means Andy's mom is not around. This is a special bonding time. He really is filled with paternal love towards everyone because he feels paternal love towards Andy, and that just reflects to everyone else that he
0: meets. You know, something really interesting happens here for me. You know, a lot of times a character in a movie starts by wanting to take the easy way out. And that's not Woody. Like, he's principled. But by the midpoint of this movie, he's lured into sort of, it's almost a narcissism by the prospector. (laughs) Like, look at who you were. Look at, And he turns his back on everyone he's ever cared about. And so the goal of the movie is he has to remember who he is and what he's all about at his core, and not really be lured in by the glitz and the glamour of his toy line and his posters and his TV show, right? He's having a reverse Buzz Lightyear experience from the first movie. Buzz truly believed he was sent from Star Command, but Woody doesn't know who he is. And so he gets sucked into what other people think he was always meant to be. It's a reversal from what we might expect. It's a total reversal from the first film,
1: He even starts referring to the things on the TV episode as things that he's done, which, again, contrasts with the opening of this movie where Buzz can see that video game version of himself and know, that's not me, right? That's not my story. That's just a video game. The moment where Woody starts to fall into the trap is when Prospector says to him, and there's such great irony in this, you've forgotten who you are. But Prospector asking him, you've forgotten who you are, is what causes Woody to forget who he is. One more thing about Woody. The thing that's so great about Woody's arc here is it is set up by the first movie. At the end of the first movie, Woody and Buzz are sitting next to each other and Buzz is nervous. Who will be? Is Andy going to get another toy that's going to replace him? Woody is nervous, too, in a sort of way. And they get to see the dog arrive and they're both nervous. They both know their time in Andy's room comes to an end. It's finite. And this next chapter is picking up on the anxiety that will always exist and has not been resolved in the first movie. Woody was worried about, you know, his end. He's still worried about it. That flaw from the first movie? Look, I'm someone with a more than healthy amount of existential dread. This is not a problem that gets resolved once and for all until the ultimate resolution of your life, right? Right,
0: right. Buzz Lightyear and Utility Belt Buzz... Played by Tim Allen. I have been waiting
1: for these characters for a while because I've wanted to talk about the Buzz Lightyear problem. I'd like to set it up and then throw it over towards you a little bit. So the thing that is great about Woody that I just mentioned a few seconds ago is that Woody's problem from the first movie hasn't fully been resolved and can be re-explored here in a new context. The Buzz Lightyear problem is that the thing that is most interesting about Buzz is resolved in the first movie. His character flaw was that he thought he was a real person and has to realize he's just a toy. And once you take away the most interesting, complicated part of a character, how do you come back to that character in a sequel and make him still be interesting? And what I think is great Is this movie and Toy Story 3 will both, and Toy Story 4 will each try a different answer to that question. But I wanna throw it to you, Andy. How do you make Buzz interesting once his biggest character flaw has been removed?
0: Well, I mean, I think it's interesting that Buzz has a nemesis here, right? The Space Ranger, and that nemesis is the Space Ranger he once believed that he was, right? Buzz is tasked here or chooses to become a true space ranger and lead his troops, (laughs) right, on a mission. And that mission is to find their pal. In the first movie, Woody has to teach Buzz that he's a toy in the sense that he's not truly a space ranger, but he's just a toy, a child's play thing, right? But in this movie, Buzz teaches Woody that he's a toy and what it means to be loved as a toy and not just a trophy piece. And I think... The movie needs Utility Belt Buzz as this clueless space ranger because the tension, he's an obstacle, right? The tension that that Buzz has with Utility Belt Buzz is just fun and necessary. I would say that's kind of, that's where I land on that.
1: Because the thing that made Buzz funny in the first movie was that he thought he was a space ranger. How do you get that back? They introduce a second Buzz who thinks he's a space ranger. We get our cake and we get to eat it, too. We get to say Buzz has progressed as a character, but we still get to have fun, crazy Buzz. We put them in conflict with each other. We get a conversation between the two of them. And it's so great. It's such a smart answer to a problem that is unique I think, to the Toy Story movies. I love the solution to this. The other thing that I like, I wish we could explore this a little bit more, maybe we'll explore it more in other conversations, is when Buzz Lightyear meets Buzz Lightyear 2, there's a question of, are all Buzz Lightyears, when they're first out of the package, the same? Are they all the same person? Do they all have that same spark, that same soul? Like, I guess this is an existential question for a toy, you know, mythology, I guess. But what I do like is that Buzz 2, by the end of this movie, has evolved along a very different line than Buzz 1, right? At the very end, when the mission is over, He's given the opportunity, Buzz 1 says to Buzz 2, you come in with us? And Buzz 2's like, nah, I think
0: I just want to stay here and spend more time with my dad. I mean, it's obviously a Star Wars play for the adults in the audience, right? But I love that Zerg reconnects with Buzz father to son. I think that's kind of genius. But my point here is, once they got
1: past their initial settings, they're different people. You know, they form different relationships. They've had different experiences. They are not clones of each other. Buzz 2 will never become who Buzz 1 is. Buzz 2 might never be attracted to Jesse. They do have, I mean, I don't know who's invested in in the, you know, do toys have souls question that I've got here, but they do have different souls. And I like that little resolution. It's a nice place to leave that character With his own unique identity.
0: Right. And even Zerg gets redeemed, which is kind of nice. Yeah, he's a father now. He's not just gonna, he's not a killer. Well, Zerg is directly in contrast
1: to the Prospector. Zerg is not an important character in this movie. He's often talked about. But obviously, this Zerg toy, who's this villainous toy, we see him emerge from a box with a punch, and he's like, destroy Buzz Lightyear. At the end of the day, The revelation here is he's an action figure of a bad guy, but he's also a toy, and the role, the function of toys is to love children. So we meet Zerg, and we, if we're young enough in the audience, maybe are afraid of Zerg and like, oh, he's the real bad guy of this movie. Then we get to the end of Zerg, where Zerg reveals that he's Buzz Lightyear's father, which, of course... Ridiculous, And that he's playing catch and is a good dad with Buzz, which also is ridiculous, is meant to remind us there are no bad toys, except, except that's the moment that we stop fearing Zerg, that we learn to fear the prospector. I think that
0: is brilliant.
1: So now set up Stinky Pete.
0: Well, yeah. So Stinky Pete, the prospector, played by Kelsey Grammer, he sets the roundup gang with this false dilemma. Either we go to the museum or we go back into storage. There's never any other plan for either of them. And so storage is in the dark and he feeds Jesse's anxieties. He really does that. I think it's because Pete's never really known the love of a child. He's going to use the toys around him to get to a place where he can almost be worshipped, you know, in a museum. And he talks kind of about that. His wrapped up ending is really near perfect. He's going to be loved. He's not going to be in mint condition. There's kind of a call to the Velveteen Rabbit here. When a child loves you for a very long time, you become real. So Pete isn't really real. And the truth is, he's been out of the box despite what he's been telling people, that he's been mint condition, that he's never been out of the box. But it's time for him to really come out of the box and experience life. And I think when he is plunked next to that Barbie and that girl's that little girl's backpack, it's awesome because we know he's got a future and a hope, right?
1: I do. I also think to myself, Stinky Pete is such a complicated character. And the reason he's a complicated character is he is Woody's foil in this movie. He is Woody if Woody let his jealousy consume him, right? Uh, Pete talks about how he would have gotten bought if it wasn't for those space toys. Well, what was Woody's problem in the first movie? He was replaced by a space toy. It's the same thing. The other thing that Pete does, it's very subtle, and I don't know that I even picked up on it till just this second. Woody, when he's in Andy's room, is the father to all the toys. But when we get to Al's room, it's Pete who's the father figure, who's the paternal figure. And yes, he's, he looks like an older toy, but that's just how he was made. He's not older than Woody or Jesse or Bullseye. That's his space. It's his domain. I also want to throw out, I think Pete actually does have some wisdom here. And at one point, like, when I say wisdom, what I mean is he's wrong. His worldview is wrong, but it's a worldview that he's earned through his life experiences. A line that really connects me to Pete is when Pete sees Woody's arm has been ripped. Pete says, did that boy hurt you? He's concerned that Woody's comes from an abusive home because he's never known what it's like to play with a kid and maybe you get a bruise or
0: something along those lines. His worldview is... He's been trapped inside a box. And that's where, and the box is safe, so you stay in the box, right? He completely deceives me, though. That bit where he tells Woody to go make peace with
1: Jesse before you leave, that bit where he tells Woody, you can stay or you can go, it's your choice. He does seem to be this wise figure. And it isn't until later that we realize oh, he's gone insane from being in that box for all of those years.
0: Right. Or was he being manipulative by saying, by knowing Woody and saying, like, he's not going to leave Jesse if I'm like, oh, you should go talk to her and, and give her one last final goodbye. And then she gives you the when she loved me sequence and makes that abandonment really real. He's almost putting feelings into Woody's brain, which is confusing to Woody, I think.
1: I think there's a certain sort of person who suffered for a long time that when they're offered something that would make them happy, rejects it because they deserve more than happiness. If you didn't suffer as I suffered, how can I get the same happiness that you get and it all be even? I need super happiness to make all of my suffering pay off. It bothers me. Pete should take Woody's offer. Andy would play with Pete. He would. But that's not enough for him. It doesn't justify the decades of being in a box, the story he's told himself about being in mid-condition, about being a museum piece. He needs the super happiness. He can't settle for true happiness. And that's a tragedy that I, I know people I know people in real life deal with, that their story has been, for whatever reason, I haven't been loved in so long that when love is offered to me, I turn it down because it isn't as much love
0: as it isn't super amounts of love. And it's a real tragedy. It's staying in the box involves no risk. There's no risk, right? A a lot could go wrong. I could be rejected. I could be abandoned. I could be hurt. I could be and so, yeah, he doesn't want any of that.
1: I'm trying to find it. And if I find it, I'll post it on our Facebook uh, fan page. There is clips. I remember this vividly of like the toys being interviewed after Toy Story 2. And there's a clip of Prospector. Half of his face is now in makeup from Amy, who has artist him. And he's, he's with a Barbie. But he talks about how happy he is now and how much he loves Amy. And... I am desperate to. I don't think I made this up and I don't think I dreamed it, but my dreams sometimes are very vivid. I know this is a real thing. I will find it. Just give me time.
0: Okay. Jesse sack, who does a great job with this character. We've talked about her some. The thing I love about her is she asks Woody this great question. She says, You don't know who you are, do you? And ironically, Jesse doesn't really know who she is because she's been in storage. And now she's under the spell of the prospector. This is kind of where she thinks Woody's journey is going too. And I think that, like like I said before, like the when she loved me sequence, it makes that abandonment that she's feeling so real. She has real fear about isolating storage and the dark. And once she's had a taste of this whole gang together, she never wants to go backward. And I totally get that. Like, I, I get that as a character. I'm with her the whole way. And Woody knows that there's more to life than this. I'm so glad that Jesse doesn't become his love interest. I'm so glad they keep it like almost sibling status or whatever. It's good. It's really, really good. To me, Woody and Jesse are soulmates.
1: But I don't think you need to be romantically involved to be soulmates. There is a palpable connection between the two of them. You're right. It's definitely more than siblings. But I think they understand each other after once Jesse tells Woody her story, which is the part that makes you cry if you watch this movie, right? When she tells Woody her story, the two of them understand each other in a profound way. There's a bond between them that no one else will ever really get. It just is, they are connected in that way. And I think her telling him that story is the moment where they become family. And where Woody realizes it isn't enough for him to get back to Andy. He needs to take her back to Andy too. Right, right. And Bullseye. Can I tell you my one little thought about Bullseye? Oh, sure, sure. Okay, the first time I watched this movie back in 1999, I thought he was the bad guy. I thought the reveal was good like so there's that part where like woody is go- trying to get his arm back from al and bullseye steps on a crunchy I'm like oh he's trying to wake him and then woody's trying to get the the arm out and bullseye starts licking al's hand and I'm like oh he's trying to wake him and I was like it isn't Jesse who turned on the TV it was Bullseye. And I thought there was going to be a reveal where Bullseye suddenly started talking and was like, it was like, do you know what it's like to be the horse? <laughs> I'm the accessory, Woody. I'm your accessory. And I'm glad they didn't do it. I'm glad they didn't do it. The Prospector is a better reveal, but I just wanted to give you that little window into, I guess, my madness, what I was thinking when I watched this movie.
0: By the way, I think... When we see Woody riding Buster the dog, um, it sets up Woody for riding Bullseye later. Like Woody is meant to. Ru- I mean, I think it's again, there is nothing set up here that is not paid off. This is a relationship he needed that he didn't know he needed. All right. So let's talk about Al McGuigan, uh, Wayne Knight from Al's Toy Barn, right? Al's Toy Barn, it's almost like this creepy Emerald City. It's this place where all the answers are, you know? There's this potential there. And I I love how they set that up. And there's this quest that the the characters have to get together and they have to get to Al's toy barn because that's where the answers are and that's not where the answers are. There's no moral ambiguity with Al. Al's a thief. You know, he's Seinfeld's Newman. So, of course, he's going to be selfish. He's the opposite of Woody. He's the opposite of the characters who are selfless.
1: More than that, Al... Sees a Woody figure. This is the thing about his character. He sees a Woody figure at a garage sale. Knows it's going to make his fortune. And he offers Andy's mom 50 cents for it. Goes up to a dollar. Goes up to $50. And then like, well, I'll have to steal it. He has the option. You know, she says it's not for sale. Throw a real number at her, Al. You know, like, he doesn't have to do this so he absolutely is a thief he loves toys for the wrong reasons i've always said this you know to my friends my friends get upset because i buy toys and i take them out of the box like vintage toys i take them out of the box and there are probably people listening to this podcast gasping like how could you do that but for me owning a toy is about playing with the toy and there is a certain type of toy collector, which is about, I buy them because they're investments. And I have always felt, if you want to play the investment game, there's this thing called the stock market toys are for playing with. That's just me. That's just me. And, but that, that's Al. Al is the dark side of toy collecting, right? I don't love them. I love
0: how much they're worth. Yeah, and I don't see any time ty- he doesn't really get wrapped super well. I mean, I love that he's sad in the commercial. That's kind of fun. Why did they use that take? <laughs> right, exactly. I mean there's a part of me that's like, mm, but I think it's clear he thinks he lost the toys en route to Japan, right? That they were somehow lost on the plane. Um I mean, which they were, but you know, that because they were animated.
1: So he's got quite a lawsuit against the airline, I think. I hope he paid for the insurance, but I know he didn't. No, you know he did He's didn't. just not that kind of guy. He's not that kind of guy. Right, exactly. Should have gotten that fragile sticker, Al. Should have gotten it.
0: Wheezy. I love Wheezy, the character. I love how Wheezy has asthma, that Wheezy's been shelved. Wheezy is innocence and vulnerability. And I think Wheezy's presence makes that sh- if we know... Him, he's there, then we get to see how innocent and vulnerable Woody now is. And I think it's great that he, you know, he illustrates the sadness, I think, of what being shelved really means.
1: And I think beyond that, this may be the first time one of the toys in Andy's room has been sold. Andy's got a lot of toys that are for kids much younger than him, a lot of preschool toys still sitting around, sitting around that room. And when Wheezy goes, it is definitely a sign to Woody that will one day Andy's mom come for him? Will the garage sale life come for him? Will you know, it's, it's sad. It's sad, which is why I'm glad I still have all my toys. They're going to be buried with me, Andy. We'll be together forever.
0: Let's talk about Rex uh, Wallace Sean. I think Rex is great. And each of these characters in the troop or the tribe, right? that goes on the quest to rescue Woody. Like, each of them have sort of a key characteristic, and Rex is his anxiety. And ironically, he's a dinosaur that hates any kind of real confrontation. I think it's great when we take a character and what we think that character should be and make it the exact opposite. He's concerned about his small arms. He's, he's sort of, a, he's childlike. He's nervous, Rex. Instead of Tyrannosaurus Rex. That's exactly right. And so, you know, his tail inadvertently knocks Zurg off the elevator. So just by being himself, he's going to conquer the evil Emperor Zurg. It's brilliant.
1: But Rex is always the one who's willing to, like, buy into other people's fantasies. He's become obsessed with the world of Buzz Lightyear. He's more obsessed with it than Buzz is. And the two of them are foils for... He's a foil for Buzz. Buzz's bravery and Rex's anxiety. I think there's something to be made out of that. And Rex secretly wishes he was the Buzz Lightyear from the video game. Because Buzz doesn't seem to be afraid of anything. I like that. I think of the ancillary characters, he
0: has the biggest arc of the bunch of them. Bo Peep. She, Annie Potts, she gets a little more to do in this movie I mean, she's the first one to remind Woody that he's loved and important, but I'm not sure he hears her. Um, She can command those sheep, and I really wanted that to be paid off somehow. And if I have one quibble with this movie, this near-perfect movie, it's that Bo Peep doesn't get to do enough.
1: Now, there are story—look, this movie is calling for Jesse. We we need a Jesse— and Bo Peep is not that. There are a couple of reasons why she can't go on the journey, that they don't really explore. And the big is that she is Andy's sister's toy. And Andy's sister is still in the room, and if she goes missing for a week, she's neglecting her duty. They don't say this. This is my headcanon, but I think it's true. I think it's true, but you're right. She's got very little to do here other than to have give Buzz a kiss and say give this to to Woody for me. P.S. Buzz does not give that kiss from Bo to Woody. I was waiting for that. That's from Bo. What's also interesting is Bo doesn't factor into Woody's decision. When Woody is deciding whether or not to go back to Andy or to stay with the Roundup gang, there's no part of him that says, but the love of my life, Bo Peep, is back there and I have to go back for her. And that's a missed opportunity. Makes you question how much he cares about her. And we don't want to question that.
0: No, no. Ham, John Ratzenberger. I love Ham. He's the engine for hijinks and also for cementing themes, right? I love the move over for the single guy's line. That's so great. He's got money that weighs him down. And I always think that's thematically significant, especially when he talks of lost change, right? He's the one who spots the utility belt buzz. He brings in that bit of crazy He gives the driving directions and notes the mileage trouble with the manual from the Pizza Planet delivery truck. And it's Ham who finds the camera equipment that helps Woody with Stinky Pete in the airport. So he does note, he notes when the toys see the sobbing owl from Al's Toy Barn, right? That crime doesn't pay. (laughs) He's sort of the, I don't know how I would describe him. He's definitely necessary, he's that guy who kind of brings things into thematic focus.
1: I mean, he doesn't have much of an arc here, but I enjoy him. I think he's fun to have around.
0: He creates obstacles. He is an obstacle and he he has these moments where again, we're calling back to theme and calling back to it's fun and theme, fun and theme, fun and theme with him. If he's not there, I think we can have some misses maybe. Fair enough. Okay, so let's talk about Mr. Potato Head and Don Rickles. I will tell you this, Potato Head freeing his foot from the gum is one of my favorite parts of this movie, and just being missed by being smashed.
1: I love when he's like, it's time for Mr. Angry Eyes, and he puts a pair of feet into his eyes instead by accident, and goes charging. I love that, too. Another fun character to have around, he has his moment of heroism when he saves the three aliens from being knocked out of the car. Again doesn't have much of an arc, but he's a fun character. The one thing that we all felt in Toy Story 1 is for as much time as we spent with Woody and Buzz, we wanted more time with these toys because they're fun too. And this movie delivers on that. It gives us what we want. So I appreciate that, even though most of them are worthless in terms of contribution to actually... I know, like
0: if you're going to take a bunch of... Dudes on a Salvation Quest. These aren't the ones that you want to take. Sometimes
1: you go to war with the toys you got, not the toys
0: you want. That's right. Let's talk about Slinky Dog, who is my favorite Toy Story character. Jim Varney, you know, golly bob howdy. There is a moment where Slinky takes one last look at Woody when Woody intends to go to the museum And he goes into the vent and he turns around and takes one last look. And it just, it gets me every time.
1: You are feeling what the filmmakers want you to feel. And that's good. It indicates a success with you. Slink Dog of the Toys. Oh God, they're going to hate me, Andy. Is the one that I forget about. He's not memorable to me. And here is why. Okay. In the first movie, we get the sense that Slink is Woody's best friend, right? That's kind of his role, that of all the other toys, he's like Woody's best buddy of the toys. But, in fact, Slink is not Woody's best friend. Andy is Woody's best friend. And now in Toy Story 2, Buzz is Woody's best friend. He's got a connection with Jesse that is stronger than his connection with Slink. And... His connection with Bullseye, Bullseye is essentially a dog, right? Like, Bullseye, Bullseye's got that loving dog personality. I know the movie wants us to believe that there is a real, enduring friendship between Woody and Slink that is special and unique and important, but if it exists, it is almost entirely off-camera. I don't know what he gets from Slink, that he doesn't get from these other characters. He has so many more richer, emotionally complicated relationships
0: with the other characters that I
1: always forget Slink ever existed.
0: See, I don't, and the reason why is we don't deserve dogs, right? Slinky's the one who finds his hat in the very beginning, And he says, I've got good news and I've got bad news, right? We know what Slinky's been through to get to where he is, right? His body is useful when the toys need to get from spot to spot. He needs two cones when he crosses that street, kind of incognito. He's very nearly killed at the airport conveyor belt, right? He's always helping save the toys. And in that airport conveyor belt, it's an opportunity for the toys to save him. And in fact, there are lots of mini saves of toys throughout this entire movie which builds on the overall theme of what's going on with Woody. So I think that for me, Slinky Dog is this, he's almost an observer in the movie, but he's definitely on Woody's arc that kind of, I think, keeps things moving forward. You can have an ancillary character that's just there for the, you know, oh, that's just there for the bit because the filmmaker thought it was funny. But I think each of these are building on theme, which is that everybody matters.
1: Let me meet you halfway on this. All right, I'm going to offer my olive branch. I'm going to say that you feel the way the movie wants you to feel about Slink Dog, and so you are right. For me to get there, I need a conversation between Slink and Woody that approaches the level of conversation that Buzz has with Woody about who you really are, or that Jesse has with Woody, or that Bo has with Woody, or that even Andy has with Woody, And this movie doesn't show me that. I'm willing to believe that in the world of Toy Story, those conversations happen. I would love to see one of those conversations in this movie. And that would make me care about... I don't hate Slink. I just don't think about him. That's what I'm going to say.
0: Well, let's talk about themes. I mean, I think one theme is that toys are meant to be played with. I think so, too. But for me, the big
1: theme of this is death.
0: Do you remember the point? So I, I I brought up the bit
1: with the playing cards. There's another great moment where Woody has to make a choice between whether he's going to stay with the Roundup Gang or go for Andy. And he looks at the Roundup Gang and he looks at all of the stuff, all of the items and toys about him, the posters, you know, the bubbles, everything. And then he looks towards the future, and the future is a black, the vent, it's a black void. That is his Nietzsche moment of like staring into the abyss and having the abyss stare back at you. This movie is about Woody's fear of dying, symbolically. If Andy throws him away, he's a lost toy, he's a broken toy, he's destroyed. It, it really is about mortality. And thematically, what Woody realizes is, the only way to deal with that is to not worry about the future, and live in the present. I think this movie is about Woody recognizing, yes, this will come to an end, but what's important is where I am now, not the ultimate end of things, which is how I deal with my existential dread. It's the only way. It's how we all have to deal with it. If you spend your entire life worrying about the end then the the spoiler at the end of this is you haven't lived your entire life.
0: And that question is, you know, who are we really, right? That plays in so well with this because it's like, are we about protection or are we about living?
1: Woody would be miserable in that museum. He would be safe there, but he wouldn't be living anymore. He'd be bored. They're already going to start to run out of games that they can play just the four of them. And they'll be in a limited display case. And that'll be it. And the prospector isn't playing, right? There's, there's only so much of that they can do. Forever? For eternity? No, thank you. No, thank you.
0: There's this great line from one of the producers, Helen Plotkin. And she says, one of the great themes of this film is that it's better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all. Basically, what Woody and Jesse and all the characters discover is the value of life. You have to experience life while you can. Nothing lasts forever, but that's okay. As long as you've experienced it and you love someone and you're affecting others, life is worth living. Well, that was better than what I said. No, I think it was a good wrap to what you said. And there's another line of, I, I think a theme of this too, is about perfection. You know, when Woody is put back together, for example, by the cleaner, he is sewn up perfectly. That stitch is perfect, but it still gets ripped, right? And when Andy stitches him, it's not perfect. Those aren't the st- perfect stitches. But it's perfect to Woody because it means there's love there. So I think that idea of perfectionism versus the good is a theme that I think is throughout this movie, too.
1: You need to get some bruises to go through life. You need to heal. You need to get some. No one comes through life without scars. That's just the way that it is. And it really is kind of a midlife crisis for Woody when he's restored to his mint condition settings, right? That's so I went out and I I tried to make myself look like I was 25 again.
0: Okay. We usually have a segment here where we talk about protagonist problems. Do you think there are any protagonist problems with this movie?
1: No, because they solve it brilliantly. There there could have been a Buzz Lightyear problem, but they solved it. There are no protagonist problems here. I love this movie.
0: I know. It's great. I think it is a masterclass in writing a protagonist, especially if you decide to have that A story and the B story which the A story is what's going on with Woody and the B story is the you know the friends trying to find Woody there isn't
1: even an antagonist problem it's just good character work throughout
0: yeah i mean you have the antagonist of of Al and then you also have the uh, the brilliant antagonist almost the sinister of the of the prospector
1: Al is a foil for Andy prospector is a foil for Woody Buzz 2 is a foil for Buzz. Everyone is foiled so nicely. It's just great.
0: So, given Toy Story 1 through 4, we have Buzz Lightyear, Star Command, we have Lightyear, the new movie that's out right now. A handful of shorts about these characters. The shorts. There's a Toy Story musical. There's Toy Story on Ice. There's the video games, on and on and on. Like, what do we do with this material?
1: Here's my pitch it's a pitch for a short, it's not a full movie. I want to know what happens to Buzz 2 and Emperor Zurg after they play catch together. Here's my pitch for this. They love each other now, but they have to go back to the toy story. And what if they don't get bought together? So it is a series of kids coming in and one of them grabs like Buzz, but not Zurg. And like Buzz tries to get himself back onto the rack until... They're the last two action figures sitting at the store. And someone comes in and buys them together. That's my pitch. It's a short seven to nine minutes. That's what
0: I want. I also thought of a short film. And I want to showcase the women of Toy Story. And maybe they're just enjoying a normal day when one of them is all of a sudden being chewed by Buster. Like they're missing somebody and that person's being chewed by Buster. And they have to figure out a way without Woody Buzz and the gang to doctor their friend and also to coax Buster into being a better dog. And so Bo Peep decides to train Buster in the same way she's trained her sheep.
1: Bo Peep and Jesse teaming up to rescue Mrs. Potato Head sort of thing. Oh, I love it. That's it. I would also be happy with a Real Housewives version with the three of them. That would be great. I love it. Well, what movie are we tackling next week? So next week, listeners, pay close attention because we are watching 1950s, Treasure Island. There are no Muppets in this version. We watched this version. So one day we will watch Muppets Treasure Island and compare them. And it is not Treasure Planet. It is not Treasure Planet. RKO Pictures 1950 Treasure Island. It is available on Disney+. Plus. I have not seen it in forever, but I recall it being good, so I'm excited for it.
0: I really like Long John Silver in that movie. So, if you like what you're hearing, will you do us a favor and share this podcast with another Disney or classic movie fan? And if you write us a review or just you know click those stars, we'd be so pleased. And if you could check out our Once Upon a Disney Facebook page, you can tweet us with your questions at, at Andy Redwine or at Larry Brenner six. And you can drop us a line in our mailbag at onceuponadisneypodcast at gmail dot com. So until next time, friends. See you real soon. See you real soon.